Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Invention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Oh, yeah. Hello, I am Joe Laurent, and welcome to Hold the Line, the podcast for force free gun dog training. Hold the Line is committed to helping you train your dog to an advanced level using motivational methods and without the use of fear or pain. Thank you for tuning in and please make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Hold the Line. So I got some bad news this week and it left me with a bit of a dilemma because I thought that the choice that I have in front of me is going to be either to tell as few people as possible try and as far as possible pretend that this hasn't happened and try to smooth things over and not, you know, try not to let anyone know really as far as possible. And the other option that I had was to talk publicly about it, to explain what's happened and to talk about why what's happened has happened. And that's what I'm doing, obviously, or I would not be saying these things right now. So... The reason why I've decided to take this path is I think that what's happened is really relevant to what we all face as force-free handlers, trainers, um, and I think that it arises out of the conflict between mainstream gun dog training and force-free gun dog training. So as some of you might know, because I've mentioned it before on this podcast, and on social media, I had a book which was coming out in two months' time on force-free gun dog training, and it was being published by a publisher. And the book now is not going to be published by this publisher. So I'll fill you in on how things have evolved, so that you can kind of follow along with the story, as it were. So I finished the book; it was completely finished. Before I sent it anywhere or showed it to anyone or sent it to the publisher. Um, so when they saw it, they saw it in its finished state. And this is probably November or December. They were the first publisher that I sent it to. And their response, they were very impressed with the book, they said. And they wanted to publish it. They offered to pay for the illustrations as an advance against my royalties. But I declined that because I wanted... Um, more control and ownership of those illustrations. And I'm very glad that I did now because I still have those illustrations and the rights to them. So, um, but that offer to pay for those illustrations, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good indication of at that point, their level of support um, in the project and their belief in the book. So 
um, we signed the contract and that was signed in February. So in my world, a contract is a binding thing, as it were, and that was signed in February. We agreed the jacket cover, so we agreed a, a picture, a photo that for the jacket, and it was all designed, and that was finalised. The foreword to the book was written, the book was edited in minute detail, obviously, as, as books always are, and I'd responded to the edits as well, so I'd um, replied to the editor and got back to them with my response on the edits. The book was due out in two months' time, so this is all very close to when it was actually going to appear. And then, out of the blue, and to my complete surprise and shock, I get this email from the publisher. They will just quote this one sentence. They said, uh, We do focus on the traditional gundal training market, and while I had planned that your book would cross over, once we went through the content in greater depth, it became increasingly apparent that we would not be able to market it to our core readership. And just like that, that's it. So it turned out that this was coming from the fact that they had shown the book to the editor of the UK's leading shooting magazine, who is obviously very much involved in mainstream or traditional gundog training. And the editor of the UK's leading shooting magazine has replied that should the book be reviewed, then the strong advice they would give would be not to buy it. So they also said that the book lacks any understanding of how to work a dog to the gun and told the publisher that publishing it would diminish the publisher's reputation. So, on the basis of that response from the editor of the UK's leading shooting magazine, the publisher has pulled out of publishing the book. A book which, let's not forget, they were very impressed with originally. So, (laughs) you know, I was really shocked to get this email. Um, So close to when the book was supposed to be Um, out and published and obviously you can see that what's happened is the mainstream someone representing the mainstream gundog community has poo-pooed the book this force free gundog training book doesn't think that this is the way that you should train a gundog doesn't give force free methods any credit um and that's that basically so um yeah, publisher wants good reviews, has been told they're going to get a really crappy review in a um, reputable shooting magazine, and that's that, not going to publish the book. So, you know, I, I was kind of shocked at this, but then I thought, actually, this situation of the mainstream gundog world coming up against force-free training occurs, and I've met that situation many times before, this is the first time that I've <laughs> I've had anything to do with meeting this in terms of a book and getting published. But, you know, that scenario and that conflict is something that I think so many people listening right now can relate to and identify with. Um, and if you've just been along with your dog, which you've trained without the use of force to a traditional training class and you've seen people around you using force or maybe the instructors told you to use force or you felt the sort of subtle social ramifications of being the odd one out or being the person who's not doing what everyone else is doing then you've been in this situation you've experienced the same conflict or the effects of the same conflict yourself and you know exactly what I'm talking about this attitude towards force-free training this condescending dismissive um that's not how you do it attitude this is this is an exact conflict that people have every time they they step out into mainstream training and I can feel the same feelings now about the book as I would have if I were going to attend a traditional training class. 
it did remind me a little bit of something that happened a very long time ago with my Weimarana Slate, um, who's no longer with us. Um, but when we first got Slate, I, at the time, wanted to show her. So both her parents were show champions. And I thought, therefore, that as well as, you know, competing with her and working with her and training her, um, that I should also investigate showing. I didn't know anything about showing. And so I thought, well, I need to attend a ring craft class and I need to learn how to do this. So I went along to a ring craft class. It was my first time at this class. And Slate, you know, was a young Weimaraner puppy. And we'd never done this before. And the fact that it involved me running running around with her, well, she was supposed to be running next to me, but she was, she was like a yo-yo jumping up and down, really, frankly. So... Um, we didn't look very good. In fact, um, it was very difficult to assess her movement at all because it was kind of vertical rather than, <laughs> rather than horizontal. Um, so, Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me and apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. What happened is the person taking the class was clearly not force free and decided that they would make a bit of an example of us i think so everyone was sitting down watching the seminar leader um then it wasn't seminar class instructor whatever you want to call them and the woman said um you know i'll just demonstrate and she came up to me to take slate off me now i think at this point in my life i feel quite confident saying i'd rather that you didn't demonstrate with my dog if i wasn't sure that i was in a force free environment but at that time this was you know, being a new class with new people all around you, wanting to be liked, wanting to be accepted by the class, um, wanting to be able to continue coming there and to learn and progress in that environment. I gave the lead, um, Slate's lead, over to this um, instructor. And so the instructor started to run up and down on the um, rubber matting, which we were using with Slate. And every time Slate tried to run forwards the um, woman running with her would correct her, would give her a jerk on the on the slip lead that she had around her neck. Now, the thing is that when this happened, Slate 
Slate's natural desire was to come back to me. So she saw me as representing safety, as representing someone who could stop this and protect her. And every time she tried to run to me, she just got a correction. So, so I just had this horrible decision to make in that moment. I just thought I can either, I was really weighing this up. I can either sit here and allow this to happen and just wish for this moment to be over quickly and for this to stop and then try never to give the lead to anyone here again and try and you know get what I can get out of this class whilst also not using the methods that they're using and is that possible I was trying to just try to calculate all of this it's really difficult um or I can just leave if I if I leave right now that's it there's no coming back every opportunity which this class offers to me is gone any sort of opening or connection that any of these people have is gone any sort of way that I can further my own um knowledge via learning from these people is gone any sort of um insider um you know people just feeling well disposed to you who are judging or you know that kind of thing all of those slight advantages are gone if i if i leave right now and and i just thought you know this time i just thought i'm going and i stood up and i walked up to the woman and my heart was pounding so hard i could hardly hear my voice i felt like i was having some sort of panic attack um this was in front of the whole class and i just said uh to the woman um please can i have my dog back and I just knew enough at that point not to get into an argument over what was being done. I was just wanted my dog back so that I could make her safe again. And I think the woman just froze and looked at me and I just repeated again, please, can I have my dog back? And the woman couldn't really argue with that because I was the owner of the dog. I was requesting that I have my dog's lead back. It wasn't really anything she could do. So she gave me the lead back, at which point I just turned and I just walked out of the hall and I just left. And, you know, one of my um favorite memories of of my whole time with slate is that as i left the hall there was this round of applause from everybody who was watching me leave with her and i've no idea what happened after that i wish i could be a fly on the wall i don't know how the person taking this class could have got out of that situation after i just been applauded for standing up to her um but the thing is that i did lose a lot by making that decision i lost i lost all the knowledge which i could have um tried to implement in a a force-free way and i lost the connections i lost friendships i lost all the opportunities that would have been available to me if i remained within that class and that was a very different situation that was a ring craft situation it wasn't a gundog training situation but exactly the same thing happens when you decide not to attend a mainstream gundog training class it's kind of like being treated in this silencing, um, excluding and dismissive way. I know that I've talked in the past about how I don't want there to be these two different enclaves, the traditional enclave on the one side and then the force-free gundog trainers on the other side. Uh, one of my hopes for this podcast is to try to address that a little bit by bringing knowledge from people who may use some aversives but are very experienced um into well into the realms of force free so we can talk talk about what people are doing which can be incorporated into force free training and thereby hopefully progress force free training and acquire new skills and knowledge um for us as a community um so one of the plans for this podcast was to kind of broach that gap a bit and also that was one of the reasons why I liked that a traditional um, shooting publisher was going to publish this force-free gundog training book. I thought that that was a sign that these um, were not going to end up with these two separate communities. Some force people who want to train without the use of aversives 
deal with this by not being part of um, mainstream gundo training society so they will just train with other force free trainers and they will attend seminars with force free trainers and they will train by themselves a lot and if they go on shoots they'll go on shoots where they're able to do what they want to do so i can completely understand why they do this because well if you just look at the experience that i've just had i think that probably says it all now the problem is that um, just as with that Ringcraft example, that there is a lot of knowledge in mainstream communities. And there's a lot of, for example, experience. There's a lot of knowledge about fieldcraft. There's a lot of knowledge about how the wind works, about what dogs are likely to do in particular situations. And there's just a lot, a lot of sort of um, wisdom, which is not, it's implicit rather than explicit. And it's kind of picked up through spending time with people who are very experienced and knowledgeable. My worry is that if we exist in a certain force-free bubble or force-free enclave, that we cut ourselves off from a lot of that brilliant knowledge, which we need to have in order to make force-free training better. And ultimately to prove that it is a viable alternative to mainstream traditional training, which uses aversives, to show that it actually works and it gets results, that we can compete successfully and uh, that there are many of us doing that and so on and so forth. Because ultimately that's the only thing which is going to really change the hearts and minds of many people who do use a lot of aversives they want to see that this is effective and so in order to achieve that we do have to venture out from our force free bubble um, and come into contact with the mainstream and of course when we do that we leave ourselves vulnerable to being on the receiving end of this dismissive rejecting excluding that's not how you do it um, kind of attitude really and so it's, it's just interesting that it's happened again in exactly the same way with this book as it may have happened if I'd stepped in person or any of us had stepped in person into a mainstream class that uses aversives. And I'm sure plenty of people have felt uh, treated in this way um, when they've been in mainstream classes. So, yeah, anyway, I thought that it was kind of interesting that this exact same dynamic has happened again. Um, in the process of trying to get a book published, which it would just never have occurred to me before that that it would play out here as well. Where I'm going to go from here is I am going to maybe try a couple more publishers, but really I think we may end up self-publishing. And part of that is after this experience, I just, I almost feel a bit burned. I just almost don't want to work with anyone else. I like the idea of having complete control over the project and um, not having anyone else to, to answer to really, which you know, it's perhaps understandable after this. I just, you know, trust is not going to be easy after that experience. So, um, yeah, so sorry, everyone. So the book is hopefully going to come out still at some point because it's finished and there are hundreds of illustrations which I've paid a considerable amount of money to have um, in order to illustrate all the different exercises, including the full clicker retrieve and lots of heel work exercises. And so I have all of that ready. I just need to... Um, basically learn how to self-publish I think and decide what I'm doing and you know get everything in order and hopefully will be out I don't know whether it's going to make it by the summer which is when it was supposed to be out originally but it will hopefully be out soon after that Hold the line. so I had a, a sort of training question come in uh, from Lisa and I'm just going to read you what she wrote which is on uh, Facebook she left a Facebook post so this is what she said. Uh, just found your podcast, Joe, and enjoying them very much. 
that's good to hear um i just send them out each week into the ether and i have no idea if anyone's listening to them whatsoever but so it's good to get some feedback guys um she said i particularly liked the discussion with elsa and lena about integrating between traditional gundog and positive gundog methods one of the things i've particularly struggled with and i know others have too uh, is with over arousal in gundog classes tests and shoots it's difficult i think to train for this and change the dog's mindset when you might be a bit of a newbie yourself and you are surrounded by more traditional trainers or classmates be great to hear your thoughts or have a future session on this if possible. I think this might be one of those scenarios, having been there myself, where it is easy to get sucked into a more aversive way of dealing with the issue, which only then causes more frustration on the part of you and the dog and defeats your intention. I think you started to touch on it with Elsa and Lena at the end. More please. So I had a few thoughts on hearing that from Lisa. And my first thought was that she uses the term over arousal, but she doesn't give us any concrete examples of what she means by that and what the particular behaviours are that she's having problems with. So if I were having a conversation with her, that would be the first thing that I would ask. What do you mean by over arousal? Can you describe to me the behaviours that your dog is performing or you know, what you perceive to be the problem or what you want to stop happening um, or maybe start happening so that we can start to think about this in a kind of um, learning theory operant way and move away from this abstract concept of of over arousal which you know um i don't want to get too philosophical because i don't think it's going to be very helpful in terms of how do we train a gun dog but um if anyone wants to think about this a little bit more um you can search on itunes for a podcast called the dog real talk it's a tromplo podcast it's quite a new podcast which has just started up quite recently and the third episode is um, an interview of Susan Friedman and Susan Friedman always says that when we're talking about things like this we have to always say um, by which I mean so if we're talking about arousal we would say you know over arousal by which I mean a dog barking by which I mean a dog whining by which I mean a dog throwing himself around on the end of the lead by which I mean a dog that ignores the sit whistle and chases a rabbit so I'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause the whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be but I don't have an ad break I just have me and my whistle my trusty t12 on which I'm going to play you a tune The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the, the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend. And I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me, though, because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So, if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it, and to post it on social media, and to promote it whenever you can. 
the other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. That is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. There are many different behaviours that we could be talking about here and how we would address them depends very much on what the behaviours are that are happening and we would work then on those behaviours. So we're always trying to think about what do we want to stop happening and what do we want to start happening. So that's the first thing is define the behaviour that we are working with because then we can begin to formulate a plan to deal with it. So having said that, I to try to be more helpful than that because we don't know what these behaviors are that Lisa's um having problems with i jotted down some ideas which you know which of these ideas are going to be useful depends very much on which behaviors you're having problems with so um the first um suggestion i had was to think about frustration levels and minimizing frustration levels in your dog's training so often we start to see frustration based behaviors cropping up and these can be things like barking whining um just giving up playing us for our reinforcers and trying to sniff the floor or trying to lunge off towards other dogs or trying to seek out other reinforcers because we're not being liberal enough with our own in the dog's eyes so to kind of counter that we can be more liberal with our reinforcers so we can increase the ratio of reinforcement which is coming from us and we can also um, increase distance away from whatever it is that the dog is um, trying to get to. So whatever the environmental reinforcer is, we can move away from it. So to give you some more, that sounds a bit abstract, so to give you some examples of that idea of minimizing frustration, um, it can start really early. So sometimes we get frustration-based behaviors creeping in when we're doing something as simple as teaching the sit whistle. So someone with a dog which is prone to frustration-based behaviors might peep their sit whistle and then wait for the dog to guess the sit. Um, but the dog doesn't guess the sit because the dog's frustrated by the lack of help from the trainer and the, and the lack of any treat resulting from any of this and so the dog then barks the dog may bark and then sit at which point the trainer often clicks the sit and gives the treat or provides the reinforcer so what's kind of happening there is the frustration-based behavior of barking or maybe even of whining is getting built in to the behavior of sitting to the sit whistle and this is obviously only going to create more problems further down the line so I think you have to kind of be monitoring your dog really closely, watching your dog, whatever it is, that, whatever behavior you're training, trying to think, is my dog frustrated at any point in this? And how is my dog managing that frustration? Now, I think we often talk about frustration as if it's a really bad thing that we don't want to see frustrated dogs. And um, this is like something that we want to completely avoid. But really, we can never completely avoid frustration because frustration really is related to motivation. So... If we ask the dog to do something then and the dog knows that performing a behavior is contingent, sorry, getting the reinforcers contingent on performing the behavior, there's going to be a momentary um, brief period of frustration before between the dog hearing the cue and the dog performing the behavior. Um, 
So there will always be a little bit of frustration. And in fact, frustration can be optimal and it can increase motivation. So it's not necessarily always a bad thing. But when frustration levels get too high, that's when we start to see problems occurring. And so we need to be monitoring our dogs and making sure that their frustration levels are not too high. So yes, we can increase the ratio of reinforcement coming from us. So for example, often what happens other times when a dog is frustrated say for example um i don't know you're doing a walk up and your dog's by your side at heel and there's someone standing in front throwing retrieves um or say you are practicing steadiness to a bolting rabbit and your dog's um near you on a lead and there's someone releasing a bolting rabbit in front of you now if for the dog the main reinforcer in all of this is the bolting rabbit or the person standing in front front throwing dummies and the dog doesn't get that reinforcer very often then that's going to result in quite considerable frustration for many dogs and they may not be able to manage that in a way that doesn't impact on their behavior at that time so you may start to see barking or whining or lunging forwards to to get towards whatever it is that they want to get whereas if you are also providing reinforcers yourself more and you're providing frequent reinforcers then the the only reinforcer in the picture is no longer just that person in front with dummies or just the bolting rabbit. It's also the reinforcers that you're providing from your pocket, for example. So um, one way that we can help the dog reduce frustration levels is by increasing the ratio of reinforcement um, and not making the only reinforcer in the exercise be the thing that, um, you know, the thing out there, the big thing that they want, the thing that they are frustrated about not being able to have. So we can also teach them to work for our reinforcers as well. Um, and of course, increasing the distance from whatever that thing is, if it's a bolting rabbit, if it's someone throwing dummies, um, sometimes moving further away can help with that, um, as well and reduce the frustration as well. Um, another thing which often helps calm dogs down, which we'll get onto a little bit later is sniffing, but I'm not going to say too much about that because, um, I don't want to get ahead too much in my list of things. Um, so, um, next habituation is one thing to talk about often habituation is overlooked as something that can help and i think it's overlooked because it's not very sexy really it basically just involves sitting down on a wall or tree stump and doing absolutely nothing ignoring your dog it doesn't look like you're doing outstanding dog training when you're doing habituation um in a new environment but basically i think it often goes unrecognized and overlooked a little bit probably for that reason but it can be very very powerful so really you know a time you might use this is if you find that you get the dog out of the car and they just are really distracted we would probably say distracted um if we were not yeah so basically get the dog out of the car and the dog sniffing around and not able to focus on you and just you know not ready to train not um into you and your reinforcers but more into the environmental reinforcers so what we would do is just sit down somewhere and just wait and however long you wait will depend on your particular dog so obviously the more you practice this the less you're going to have to wait because your dog will habituate quicker so first you might have to wait five minutes or something um if you keep practicing this you might end up just having to wait 30 seconds before your dog's able to work and then 10 seconds and then five seconds and then hey presto your dog's able to work right away as soon as you get there so what you're doing is you're just really sitting there and you can check your emails on your iphone or you can just um admire the view or something um you're just letting your dog get used to that new environment so that it's no longer so new so we're just letting the novelty wear off a little bit so that 
the power and appeal of the environmental reinforcers decreases. And when you stand up and are ready to train, the power and appeal of your reinforcers in comparison is going to be greater as a result. Um, So another sort of example of this, I'm going to give you a little sneak preview. I've got an interview coming up next week with Leanne, and she said something which I thought was really useful on this subject, which is that sometimes if she's practicing some quartering and she finds that her dogs are getting a little bit, um, um, their arousal levels are starting to go up a bit and they're starting to get a bit too excited and she's worried about whether she's going to retain control, one of the things she'll do is turn around and walk back over the ground she's just been on so that it's old ground, it's, it's familiar ground, so it's less appealing. So she's taken out some of the novelty there as well. So you can see that as as being another way of using this idea of habituation too. Now, it's important while you're doing this waiting for the dog to get used to the place um, that you're also monitoring your dog. So we just talked about frustration. And one of the things you're looking at is, is, is the frustration growing while you're waiting? Because what can happen with some dogs is rather than just get used to the environment and get a bit bored of it and be more interested in you, what can happen instead is they, they are desperate to get started and to get going. And the longer you wait, the more desperate they are. When you finally stand up, they're so excited that, that you know, it's, um, they just really want to get out there to all those reinforcers much more than they did before. So it can actually be a bit counterproductive sometimes if that's the effect that it has on your dog. But it very much is a dog by dog thing. So you're just going to have to give it a go and see. So does your dog, when you stand up and you're ready to work after about five minutes, is your dog more ready to work, more ready to focus on you? Or are they just really ramped up and really into getting out there to explore all that stuff now you're finally moving? Um, So there's no way to predict that. You're just going to have to give it a go and try. So that was the second suggestion. Third suggestion is reduce criteria. And I wrote in my notes, there's got to be something you can reinforce. So, I mean, really, people underestimate like how much you can lower criteria. So if you're not getting focus from the dog, just click a glance, just click any momentary checking in with you that the dog does. So anything at all that you get from the dog, you're going to mark that and reinforce it. Don't expect to get, you know, something really amazing before you click and treat because you just won't get it. So you have to get back, you have to get the dog playing the game, playing you um, and your reinforcers and working for those before you can do anything else. So whatever the dog does, if, it, if you like it, if it involves focus on you, if it's in the direction of what you want, you're going to mark it and reinforce. Um, and really, really reduce those criteria down to whatever you have to reduce them down to. Um, and often I think people believe that, people blame things on, on arousal levels and they say that, oh, my dog can't do this because he's too highly aroused or whatever, um, when really they haven't done enough preparatory work before whatever it is they're trying to do. So... You know, if you're in a rabbit pen and the dog's really excited and revved up and is unable to sit to flush, then, you know, it's not really that helpful to go, my dog can't do this because he's too highly aroused because, you you know, like what? How does that help me train the dog better? Um, You know, there's not like a button on the dog's back that I can switch to dial down the arousal levels. So you've kind of got to um, think about all the preceding things that you've done in training and really ask yourself, have I thoroughly, fluently trained up to what I'm now asking the dog to do? So if the dog can't sit consistently in the rabbit pen, 
Can the dog sit consistently to a bolting rabbit? Can the dog sit consistently to a flirt pole with rabbit fur tied on the end? Um, and so you just go backwards through the list of the things that we've talked about in previous episodes, for example, when we're talking about sit to flush um, in an earlier episode recently, um, and make sure that your dog really is able fluently over and over again to sit in response to those stimuli. And if they can, and you've progressed onwards, then you'll usually don't run into these problems as a result of arousal because your dog understands how to respond to that stimulus so often behaviors fall apart because we haven't trained um, fluently and thoroughly up to that point so do make sure that's not the reason um, and just blaming that on arousal levels is not really going to help very much um, all right so the next suggestion is to go and explore everything that control unleashed has to offer control unleashed is a system really or method or approach to training dogs and particularly to helping dogs um, stay in their thinking minds in the presence of highly exciting stuff um, now it was, it was it's devised by leslie mcdevitt who is a genius and originally it was for agility dogs so it was designed to help agility dogs now if you think about uh, agility and agility course what tends to happen often particularly if there is not any work put into training anything else. What tends to happen is lots of dogs bark at the dog which is running the agility course. It's it's like frustration factor 500 or something. So basically all these dogs which really want to be the ones out there running the course are watching the dog actually running the course and barking their heads off at that dog out of frustration and anger. And why can't I be out there doing this? And it's not fair. And I'm so excited. I'm so excited. And I can't control myself. I want to be out there. Um, and that results in lots of noise and frustration and arousal. So that was one of the reasons that Leslie McDevitt devised Control Unleashed is to help these dogs which are waiting to wait in a calm, collected um, way. So Obviously, you can see the applications of that to gun dog work, where often dogs are expected to wait at heel for long periods of time, watching other dogs work in front of them. And they're expected to wait calmly and without any physical restraint, such as leads, um, and to wait quietly. And you can just see the applications of this, I hope, um, and, and how and why it can be useful. So Control Unleashed has got lots of books and it's got lots of DVDs which are available. And I strongly recommend that you... Go and learn as much about it as you can and try and be creative in your application of it to, to gundog work because it's going to give you lots of ideas, I think. Um, so kind of related to Control Unleashed, there's the next one, which is a particular exercise from Control Unleashed, which is also around in other um, other training vocabularies or um, other other besides Control Unleashed, basically. Um, and that is look at that. So look at that as a particular exercise where the dog is clicked for looking at the thing that they are distracted by. So when they look at the the thing, whatever it is, whether it's a rabbit, whether it's another dog running on a retrieve, they get clicked and then they hopefully will turn back to their owner for the reinforcer for the treat that goes with that click. They'll get that reinforcer. They'll look back again at the thing. They'll get a click again. As soon as they look back, they'll look back at the owner and Basically, it's just a way of helping the dog. Um, it gives the dog something to do and it includes that thing that they're distracted by, whether it's another dog, whether it's a rabbit, whatever it is. It includes that in the framework of the exercise. So instead of this being something that you have to completely ignore and not look at and just pretend isn't there, the dog is looking at this distraction. And so they're kind of taking it in and in that way, they're able to become desensitized to it. So... 
it's kind of related as well to Leslie's idea of pattern games, which again are these kind of rhythmic ways that we can click and treat a dog. And there's the up and down game, there's the ping pong game. Um, and what happens is the dog is working in the presence of the thing which they find distracting or exciting or sometimes they can be reactive to and we're able to incorporate that stimulus whatever it is into the pattern of the game um so look at that really is a pattern game in a way because the dog is is looking at the at the distraction they're getting clicked they're getting a treat they're looking at the distraction they're getting clicked they're getting a treat they're looking at the distraction they're getting clicked they're getting a treat and there's no space in this for any other behavior to occur so we've we've kind of crammed this sequence this loop this behavioral loop with stuff that we like and there's no space for anything else to happen um and so other behaviors don't tend to creep in if and it's interesting that when they do start to creep in it's when the pattern stops so for example if you don't click for some reason maybe i don't know you drop your clicker or whatever you just can't get your finger on the clicker in time that's when this the um sort of almost hypnotic trance like click and treat and click and treat is broken and in that moment that's when you'll start to see the dog get distracted start to stand up maybe start to move towards whatever it is that they want and that's when you'll see the behavior break down so so this kind of rhythmic um the use of the, of the clicker and and the mark the marker and the reinforcer in this kind of rhythmic way leslie calls a pattern game um and there are lots of different types of pattern games but what makes them a pattern game i think is that they function in this way so again this is a really kind of if you're not picking all this up by the way then don't worry about it because it's actually quite complicated stuff and it's all in control unleashed in a much more understandable readable accessible way so do go and explore control unleashed um, if you're having any problems uh, with frustration levels or arousal or anything like that so next thing to talk about is what i call relaxation behaviors which again guess what it's part of control unleashed in some ways so um to explain the use of relaxation behaviors because i think sometimes people are a bit skeptical about this one there's some research in human psychology which you might have heard of but basically they they discovered that asking people to assume the superman pose resulted in people feeling more powerful and behaving therefore behaving in a more sort of assertive powerful way so the superman pose is just putting your hands on your hips standing with your legs apart and assuming that pose for long enough for it to have an effect which i think is a few minutes i can't remember what what it was in the study but but basically the the um the conclusion to draw from this is that getting your body to assume a physical position which is usually associated with an emotional state can elicit that emotional state even if you didn't feel it in the first place so even if you feel like you're inferior and you're weak and you're not very confident this research found that if you assume a position of confidence and power and assertiveness that just assuming that position resulted in you feeling more powerful and confident and assertive and therefore behaving more powerful more powerful and confident and assertive so um it's the same thing for dogs with this whole close your mouth or take a breath basically we're going to help the dog assume the physical position of being more relaxed and and the physical behaviors which we associate with being more relaxed and when they perform these behaviors it magically will help them actually feel more relaxed okay so what are these behaviors so firstly this one is from control unleashed it's take a breath take a breath involves watching the dog's nostrils and 
clicking when the dogs or marking if you're doing using a verbal marker when the dog's nostrils flare and then treating afterwards so if you watch your dog's nostrils really closely it's quite a fine movement that you're watching for you'll see that the nostrils flare out to the sides just a little bit as the dog takes a breath if you mark that moment and give the dog a treat and you do this repeatedly over and over again Over time, the dog will start to take deeper breaths because that's what happens when we begin to reinforce something is um, it it increases in some in some way. The dog offers it more frequently. Um, The the behavior or movement gets grosser and more deliberate and intentional. So um, the dog's the dog's nostrils will start to flare more and they'll start to take a deeper breath so we know that deep deeper breathing helps also with relaxation so take a breath helps in that way as well now i tend to find that um people struggle a little bit with this one because it's such a fine small movement um and people are a little bit skeptical as well so one kind of um, behavior which i came up with is close your mouth and I kind of really like this and I find that <clears throat> people learn it quite quickly clients pick it up quite quite easily because it's a bigger movement and so they can see it more obviously and I think maybe for that reason the dog learns it more quickly as well um, so basically what you're going to do is ask your dog to sit or let your dog guess sit your dog to do this behavior needs to have an element or an understanding of um, control when they're tempted by a treat so you need to have a sit or sit stay which will continue even when you wave a treat around in front of the dogs you need to have proof to your sit stays to that degree um so assuming you've done that you'll ask the dog to sit then you'll take a treat and you'll move it around not so fast because you want the dog to jump up and try and snatch it you'll just move it around slowly in the air in front of your dog's nose not so close that they can reach it but yeah about about a foot away from their nose and as you move this treat slowly and temptingly around what you'll find is that the dog's focus starts to you know, be directed towards that treat. So they start to be really sort of almost anticipate they're about to get it in terms of um, that they want it. You can see that their eyes get really quite mesmerized by it. And while this is happening, you'll notice that their mouth starts to close. And when the mouth starts to close, you will click that precise moment and then you'll deliver the treat. So don't wait for the mouth to close fully at first. <clears throat> you can just mark the partial closing of the mouth. And over time, once you've done a few reps, you'll just find the dog starts to offer you the fully closed mouth. Now, you need to get the dog's mouth open, obviously, before you can train this, because you can't teach your dog to close their mouth if the mouth is already closed. So the best way to do this is just to play some tug or something which is going to get your dog a bit excited, a bit panting, a bit, you know, out of breath. Um, and once you've got that mouth open, then you can start to do close your mouth. And the other thing that this is going to achieve is it's also teaching your dog to move from a state of high arousal, which is what's involved in playing tug, through to being calm and closing their mouth. And the more that you build the muscles of being really excited, and I guess we could say highly aroused if we're going to use that phrase, which is slightly controversial, but um, so dogs are excited, highly aroused, and then they calm themselves down by learning how to close their mouth. And then they're excited and highly aroused, and they calm themselves down. And the more that we build this muscle of going backwards and forwards from being highly aroused to being calm, being excited, being calm, uh, the more easy the dog's going to find it to um, reclaim calmness when they're excited in other situations. So for example, when out flushing game or walking at heel and something they put something up the the more able the dog the more ready the dog is going to be to calm themselves because they've done this work with you um 
So you can also put this on cue as well. So you can have a cue which tells the dog to close their mouth. I tend to combine it with my watch me cue. So watch me um, as a hand signal is an index finger put up to my face. So if my dog sees that, not only will they watch me and give me eye contact, but they'll also close their mouth. So it all becomes built in as one behavior uh, for me. So the other use for close your mouth is if you've got any sort of noise. So if you've got whining or sort of questionable panting, which is getting a bit vocal um, or even barking. So close your mouth will help with all of that because all that noise isn't really possible if the dog fully closes their mouth. So it can help there as well. Now, each rep of close your mouth is quite a momentary behavior. So your dog is going to close their mouth or partially close their mouth. You will click or mark that and then you'll reinforce with a treat. So that's one rep. Now, if you then don't do anything further, you just stand there, then your dog's going to go back into whatever the unwanted behavior is that they were doing before. So in order to achieve a sort of long term or more lasting uh, calming down effect, you need to do this repeatedly. So you'll need to do close your mouth, click treat, close your mouth, click treat, close your mouth, click treat. And just if you do this over and over again, you'll start to see that your dog calms down um, in a sort of more lasting long term way. Now, the other thing to say about close your mouth is you need to be sure that your dog doesn't actually need to pant. So if they're hot, they need to be able to pant in order to be able to cool down. So if it's a hot day, you may not want to do close your mouth. If it's you know the middle of winter and your dog hasn't yet been off leash or running around or done any retrieves yet, then it's probably not that they are you know hot or that they need to pant. It's probably the panting is probably due to um, arousal levels and close your mouth can help in those situations but just be careful that your dog doesn't actually need to pant because it might be unsafe if you prevent them from panting by repeatedly asking them to close their mouth they'll be unable to cool themselves down so that's another suggestion for relaxation and then the third suggestion for relaxation behavior is just sniffing and that is a really easy one i like to do it as find it so kind of want to put a few treats on the floor at your feet and grass is really great with this because it acts like a natural snuffle mat so the dog can like sniff around all the grass at your feet and they can really get quite preoccupied doing this. Sniffing involves taking deep frequent breaths so it's quite calming and it gives the dog something else to focus on which isn't you know I don't know whatever is happening. If you find your dog's really over aroused um, to use that word, that phrase, um, in a particular situation, uh, moving away to one side and doing some find it, some sniffing behavior at your feet to find treats can be really quite useful. So you want to kind of place the treats, you know, several treats, like maybe at least five or six treats, um, sprinkle them ar around sort of a one foot square area in front of you. So the dog's kind of sniffing around that spot to find the treats and gets quite busy. While the dog is sniffing, you want to add another one to just drop it down where they're not looking behind behind them. So you don't want the dog to end up looking at you for this. You want to sort of keep the dog sniffing and keep the dog sniffing, keep them sniffing until you judge that their arousal levels have reduced enough that you can go back to training again. Now, obviously, when they're sniffing, their head and their focus is downwards on the ground. And so sniffing is not great if you need the dog to be, for example, paying attention to anything that's happening, whether it's... Um, shots happening birds falling dummies being thrown anything happening out and about that you want them to be marking it's not great if your dog's got their head down they're sniffing around so if your dog is actively involved in exercise sniffing is probably not a good one but sniffing is great if for example you are waiting around um, at the beginning of a shooting day and um you your dog is very excited and wants to get going then the sniffing is a great one 
for that sort of time period. Equally, um, if you are at a training class and your dog, you know, you're listening to things that the instructor is saying and you're not actively training your dog in that moment, but you want your dog just to be calm. Sniffing's great for that as well. So, um, yeah, so any time that you are waiting around for an activity to start and your dog is not actively involved in that activity yet, then the sniffing is a great one for those kind of in-between moments. So just as we are coming to the end of things today, I just wanted to recap and emphasise the role of frustration in all of this. So it's actually quite hard to imagine the majority of these problems even existing without the dog experiencing frustration in some way. So as much as we use this nebulous term arousal, I think perhaps a more useful way to think about it is frustration-based behaviours on the whole. Um, Now frustration arises because there's a perceived reinforcer. The dog can see there's something that they want to have and the dog can't have it. And this results in all kinds of problems generally for dogs, um, gun dog training aside. So, for example, um, a dog which you're walking down the street, which really loves other dogs and you have to walk past another dog on leash. The dog which really loves other dogs will often end up, you know, straining to get to the other dog, pulling on the leash, uh, maybe even jumping up and down on their back legs, maybe even barking because they're so frustrated. And sometimes we can see that frustration redirected back at the at their owner at the handler so the dog might turn around and mouth their hands or turn around and mouth the leash and that happens because of frustration the dog really wants to get to the other dog they're friendly they just want to get to the other dog and greet the other dog and they see the other dog as a, as a reinforcer which they can't have at that moment so this is exactly the same thing if a dog wants a retrieve and they can't have that retrieve either because you're waiting longer, it's not a retrieve for them yet, or maybe it's another dog's retrieve or whatever the situation. Maybe you're waiting for the end of the drive. So whatever the situation, there's a retrieve out there which they can't have. And if a dog wants to, if a dog's a spaniel or a HPR versatile dog and they want to be cast off to start hunting, to start quartering, and they're just desperate to get started. They just want to get out there to investigate all the good stuff that's out there in the environment. And instead, at the moment, they're on the leash at your side. And they're very frustrated by that. And so frustration really is behind a lot of the problems that we have in these situations. Um, and so that's why we need to be thinking about how to reduce those frustration levels for the dog. So just to kind of recap um, and um, on the main principles, we want to move away from that perceived reinforcer. So we, we reduce its suction for the dog. Um, we reduce its appeal. Suction is a term from um, North American Retriever Training, which we'll talk about probably at some future point. Um, just basically means the appeal, which the um, reinforcer out the in, in the environment has for the dog. So move away if you can, because that will make it less appealing. And you can give reinforcers from yourself more frequently, your own reinforcers from your pocket if needed. You can ask the dog for another behavior. So whether it's um, uh, find it on the floor at your feet or whether it's close your mouth, um, whatever the behavior is, watch me, whatever. You're asking the dog for another behavior and then you can then provide the dog with a high ratio of reinforcement for that behavior. Um, Look at that as another one. So all of these little behaviors and little ways that we can keep the dog working for more frequent reinforcement so that they don't get frustrated by not being able to have the thing that they want. Um, And then throughout all of this and in the background, we've also got 
the, the fact that the dog is associating the, their new karma state with the presence of whatever the stimulus is that was previously frustrating them. So if they're frustrated by another dog, if they're frustrated by the retrieve they can't have, if they're frustrated by not being able to go hunting, we are putting them in that situation with all the um, environmental cues around them, which they've previously associated with uh, frustration-based behaviours, and now they are associating them with a new karma state of being. And so the more that we do that, and the more that we do that over and over again, the more the dog is going to make that association, and the less likely you're going to f- it is that you're going to find these behaviours creeping in. And I just say that because sometimes people think, are we just plastering over the problem with all of this? Is it going to work in the long term? Are we just stopping it right now in this moment? Is it actually going to affect the dog's behaviour in a more general way? And the answer to that is yes, it does take um, many repetitions and uh, um, training and, and time for the dog to make that association. But if you do allow the dog to make that association, then it does work. Um, so that's what I want to say about frustration. The other thing to say is a couple of things to say which don't really fit into um, training exactly. So one thing is just frequent and repeated exposure to these um circumstances and situations that end up with a dog feeling like this um, can over time um, by itself see a reduction in in the dog's levels of quote-unquote arousal if for example you take your dog on a shoot um, or to a training class once every I don't know, three months or something, then the dog's going to be very excited to be in that place because it's going to be really out of the ordinary. It's going to be really special and amazing. um, And it's really going to see their quote unquote arousal levels go through the roof. So on the other hand, if you are, I don't know, uh, picking up every weekend and going to training classes a couple of times a week, this is a regular occurrence for the dog. It's not anything out of the ordinary. It's very commonplace and it's what the dog does and they settle into it and often by itself that will see arousal levels drop too. Um, so you may want to explore that. Now in exploring that you have to make sure that you are not seeing the opposite happening. You're not seeing the dog getting more and more excited in this um, place that you keep exposing them to. So you want to make sure you're applying everything we've been talking about today as well. You can't just go for exposure and not do any of the other stuff. But if you do apply all that stuff and you also keep frequently um, doing it so that, you know, putting the dog in this situation so they habituate to it, then you should see improvement from that as well. And the final point to make is about genetics. So there are some dogs that, you know, they just don't never have any of these issues um, and not particularly frustrated by anything. And they, you know, none of this is a, is a, is a significant thing to think about for their handler. And other dogs can really struggle with it and can, it can be really quite difficult for handlers. So obviously the dog brings a lot to the table genetically in terms of the package that they're born with and their natural um, tendencies. So we need to work with that as well. Once we've got the dog, we can't do anything about that. So we just have to take it as red and work with what we've got. But before we get the dog, we can try to make sure that we get a dog uh, whose parents didn't um, experience excessive levels of arousal and make sure that we have genetics working on our side as well. So there are obviously advantages to um, a dog which is really interested in the in environmental reinforcers. It's part of what we breed for. And dogs will often fall off this tightrope one side or the other. They'll, they will either lack drive and motivation and might tend towards being a bit slow um, or the opposite, they might have too much drive and motivation and might have might be prone to problems associated with that side of things. So the reason for that is because it's a bit of a 
you know, the, the sweet middle spot is hard to hit. And so you'll often get dogs falling off one side or the other of that tightrope genetically. That's just how genetics works. So there's that to think about too. But once you've got your dog, you can't do anything about that. So you've got to work with what you have. So I hope that's given people some ideas. I'm just going to run through just as a kind of summary. So basically, reduce frustration. See if frustration is operating at any point in any of this and is responsible for any of these unwanted behaviours. If frustration is responsible, reduce it. Increase the ratio of reinforcement which is coming from you because that will reduce frustration and increase distance from whatever it is that they want to get to in the environment which may be frustrating them. Number two, habituation. Um, Ensure the dog is used to the environment where you're about to start training. Get them out of the car in advance. Give them at least five minutes to habituate to that location at first. Um, And then you can start the training and you'll find over time that you'll need to wait less as you practice this. Next, um, reduce the criteria back down to something that your dog can do. There's always something that you can reinforce, always, no matter how how passing it is, no matter how small it is, there's always something that you can mark and reinforce which your dog is offering you. And you need to be watching your dog for that thing. Next, um, investigate control unleashed fully because there's just loads of stuff to unpack there. We could probably have another five hours of talking about exactly what Control Unleashed has to offer. Um, and maybe we'll get to do that in a future podcast. It'd be great to get Leslie McDevitt on. Um, so look at that as a particular exercise I want to highlight from Control Unleashed, which will give you particular um, sort of skills for coping with this. And the pattern games are the whole idea of keeping the dog in a rhythmic pattern of behavior in order to deal with those environmental reinforcers. Um, Relaxation behaviours is the last one, number six. Relaxation behaviours, take a breath, close your mouth, and then just sniffing to calm the dog down and reduce arousal levels um, as well. So, by the way, um, there is a whole chapter, or not a whole chapter, a whole section on close your mouth in my book. So, <laughs> assuming the book gets published in some way, shape, or form, um, that will help with that too. So, I hope that's useful, Lisa, and that's all for this week. Hold the line. If you have a training question for me, you can email it to me at galody at mac.com. That's G-A-L-O-D-Y at M-A-C dot com. Um, by the way, it's great if you can record it on your iPhone voice recorder app that everybody has. He's got an iPhone. Um, and then I can play your question so we can all hear it and then I can respond to it. So that's all for this week, folks. If you've enjoyed it, please do give me five stars on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever app you use. And I'll see you again next week.